Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, as Malcolm mentioned, my name's Andy. And yes, I have been at Rev for many years, about probably eight now, I think, counting. Uh, I'm, I realized that after the pandemic and coming back into um, the school, there's lots of new faces. So there's probably a bunch of you that don't know who I am, so that's okay. Don't worry. Um, I'm married to Rima, and we have a son called Ephra, and they're in crush at the moment, and she's pretty gutted about that. Um, a bit about me. I run a creative studio in London with a couple of friends. Uh, I'm a gooner, some Arsenal fan for life, and in my free time, I watch way too much professional wrestling. Um, so that's me, all summed up. Uh, I've got the pleasure of speaking to you today on the topic of Advent. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the title on the screen, but the title is Mary, Joseph, and a Sausage Roll. <laughs> so, uh, before we get started, if you could just turn to your neighbor for 30 seconds, just share one thing that you're most looking forward to this Christmas. 30 seconds, and then I'll call you back. Go. All right, all right. We'll, we'll call it there. We'll call it there. Okay, we're back in the room. We're back in the room. <laughs> now, uh, I'm sure you've all got to know each other a little bit better, uh, but it's undeniable that Christmas is a time of the year that we most look forward to. Uh, and when I was thinking about what makes it so appealing, uh, two words came to mind, comfort and pleasure. Christmas is a time of comfort and pleasure. I'm sure most of us wouldn't disagree with that, whether that's quality time with the family, back at your family home, back to your roots, whether that's time off work or time off the boss, uh, whether that's drinks and parties with friends or my wife's personal favorite, the Christmas dinner, uh, whether that's the overpriced dead trees that we buy every year and chuck out two weeks later, I still don't get that one, uh, the flurry of Christmas adverts, I know when I was growing up, Christmas wasn't Christmas until you saw the Coca-Cola lorry. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent is today, probably John Lewis. Um, maybe it's the movie marathons that we love to watch together. Um, the first two Home Alones, because the rest of them are garbage. Um, or the annual debate as to whether Die Hard is a Christmas film. I don't know, anyone who thinks Die Hard is a Christmas film is correct. Um, and of course... The obvious, the presence, the presence under the tree. Christmas is a time of comfort and pleasure, but what if you're not the majority? Christmas can also be a bit of a tough time for some. Uh, it can be a bit crap, let's be honest, because <laughs> um, it ain't all sleigh bells and whistles. Uh, when you've, you're tight on money because of all the other things that you have to consider during this period, and you're dreading paying the mortgage or the rent, Maybe you're separated from close family members because you're in a different part of the world or because of the pandemic. Maybe you're with difficult family members and the dynamic isn't that great. Uh, maybe you can't buy the toys that your kids really, really want. Uh, before you know it, Christmas can be the antithesis of comfort and pleasure. We'll come back to this a little bit later on. Historically, Christmas is also a time for Christians to celebrate the birth of Jesus. 
Now, obviously, Jesus isn't literally born on Christmas Day, but we use that time period to commemorate it, uh, to remember the significance of his birth and what it means for us in our lives moving forward. But if we're honest with ourselves, the Christmas story, the original Christmas story, isn't easily recognized for themes of personal comfort and pleasure. I mean, we've got a little depiction of it over there. You don't necessarily think, oh, I feel great after seeing that. Uh, excuse me, I haven't got the image, but in 2017, Greg's, the fast food chain, uh, released an image where they replaced the baby Jesus with a sausage roll. And depending on where you sat on the spectrum of how you responded to that image, uh, it does beg the question, what is Christmas to us? Or in other words, what brings us the most comfort and pleasure at Christmas? Now, obviously, Greg's did this as part of a marketing campaign. I'm sure they wanted to gain financially or make a few people laugh. But it does highlight something that we do annually in the West. And that is to reimagine or repackage the Christmas story. Whether that's the things that we see in our films or television shows, whether that's the music that we play on Spotify or the radio, uh, or whether it's just even what we put our entire energy and heart into, each year, Christmas has a new definition. So what's the commonality between all these things? It's a search for personal comfort and pleasure. So when we think about the original Christmas story, in some ways it isn't as glamorous as what we're presented with or what we make it up to be. Especially in the West where things are as you wish they are. Maybe it's just another, Chris, another children's story to you. Maybe it's a bit cute or innocent. Maybe the Christmas story is boring because you've heard it so many times since year one. <laughs> Maybe the Christmas story is just irrelevant to you because you can't seem to find a reason why it fits in today. The Christmas story is, if we're honest, a bit weird when we think about it. Here's a few points. We've got a heavily pregnant Palestinian teenage girl who is also a virgin. She's traveling across the Middle East with her husband on a donkey. This donkey doesn't talk, so sorry for your Shrek fans out there. Um, they're visited by angels. They can't find an Airbnb to stay in. Mary ends up giving birth between animals. I saw my wife give birth last year. I would hate the thought of a cow being in that room at the same time. <laughs> and then they're fleeing the country because there's a threat on their child's life. It's not exactly a comfortable or pleasurable experience. The Christmas story is weird. But what I'd like us to do today is to take a closer look at the story, more in detail, and what we'll find is that God himself offers us incomparable comfort and pleasure through the birth of his son, Jesus. Not just for Christmas, not just for the rest of the year, but for our entire lives and beyond. I'm just going to drink some water. Now, I've mentioned two words already, comfort and pleasure. I think it would be helpful just to put some definitions around those so we're all on the same page. Comfort, as I've written here, is a state of physical ease, freedom, and well-being from pain or constraint. 
Sounds good. <laughs> it also has this wonderful relational element to it. We can receive comfort and we can also give comfort. And so you can alleviate people's stress or grief through your very presence. So comfort is something that we can receive and also give. It's a great thing. Pleasure is a feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. It's this idea of fulfillment and contentment. So put those two things together, you're a happy bunny. You could even argue maybe that pleasure is a product of comfort. When we have comfortable moments, we enjoy what we're doing. So the two go well together. And I think certainly in our Western culture, comfort and pleasure are really some of the leading values to the decisions that we make in our life. The lifestyles that we live, the, the, it, it determines how we spend our money, uh, the people that we surround ourselves with, the beliefs that we have. It's what uh, motivates us when we fight for causes. It's what uh, leads us on as we march for rights. It's what motivates us to petition for certain freedoms. It's all the single goal in mind, which is the personal comfort and pleasure of people. And I think especially off the back of a global pandemic, which, by the way, we're still in, if you've forgotten, <laughs> we've been forced to value the things that are most important to us. Even so, if they act as a remedy for the times of distress and pain. So here's a few stats from 2020. Netflix way, grew by 36 million subscribers, brought it up to the total of 200 million people watching Netflix. People rushed to Netflix for comfort. More than 200 million printed books were sold in the UK alone. People rushed to stories. And the obvious one, the National Lottery saw the highest grossing amount of 8 billion in a single year. That's more than if every single person in the world spent a pound on the National Lottery. It's obvious that for all of us, we cannot deny that comfort and pleasure are things that we love and we want. They are, that value is inherently ingrained, ingrained within, within us. Excuse me. Uh, this guy called Blaise Pascal, he's really old. He's from the 17th century. Don't know him. Uh, he's a mathematician, philosopher, and theologian. He puts it really nicely. All men, humanity, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. We are people obsessed with our own comfort. We'll do anything to get it. So we know comfort is a good thing, and we all want it. And certainly in our pluralistic Western culture, we all know what makes us happy. So each to his or her own. So the big question today is, what does the Christmas story have to offer to me when it comes to this idea of comfort and pleasure? Because at the moment, I'm quite content. What does it have that's better than what I've already got? That's the big question today. We're going to jump into the story. Uh, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this, the verses will come up on the screen. Um, the Gospel of Luke, for anyone who's not familiar with the Bible, it's an eyewitness testimony of the life and works of Jesus. It's written by a guy called Luke, obviously. Uh, he's a physician, a doctor. He's writing to his friend called Theophilus. 
Now, if you've got a friend called Theophilus, you're on some next-level academia. <laughs> All my friends have the same names. I do not know Theophilus. So, it, so it's a credit there to know that we're, we're hanging out with some big brains. But the letter opens up. Luke is writing to his friend. He's saying, look, I've put, I've put together an orderly account for you. Please examine it so that you have good reason to believe in the message of Jesus. Now, if you're new to church, I understand that I've made an assumption here that you are familiar with this book or that you trust it. So what I'd like to do is encourage you to do three things. One, listen to the rest of my talk, please. (laughs) Number two, pick up this book. There's many books that I could recommend, but I absolutely love this one. It's called Can We Trust the Gospels? It's by Peter J. Williams. He's a scholar at Tyndale House. Uh, He's got a PhD at Cambridge. He's super smart, and he looks at several sources to help give you confidence that when you read the Gospels in here, they're not just made-up stories. They're actual historical documents that you can trust. So, number two, for those who are a little bit more on the skeptical side of things. Number three, pick up a Gospel for yourself. Read the Gospel of Luke, or Matthew, or Mark, or John, this Christmas for yourself. Back to back, front to back, uh, easy pace. It's probably like an hour and a half read, two hours. Not that hard. You can do it this Christmas. But we're going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. We're going to capture a bit of the Christmas story. We'll then zoom in on some particular things, look at the context of why they exist, and then the big question of what has the Christmas story got to offer us in terms of comfort and pleasure. So, reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. You can follow on the screen. If you've got a Bible, feel free to grab it, scroll through it. You know what to do. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinus, governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with his child. That's a long sentence. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he, with whom he is pleased. All right. Verse 10 We get three huge statements in this story. Good news, great joy, and for all the people. So, what's this good news that leads us to great joy? Here we go. In a city, a baby's born. Now, obviously, it's not that simple. (laughs) What we're told is that it's the city of David. 
The David here we're referencing is the David of the Bible, the king of historic king of Israel. He was probably celebrated as the greatest king of Israel. He was famous for delivering his people out of their enemy hands. He restored the fortunes of the land. He made the people prosperous. And he was a great man of faith. And it's that last point that's the most significant because David found great favor in the eyes of God. So much so that God has anointed David. He's set him apart. He's bestowed him with great power and dignity and worth. I've lost my place. Yes. And that was to signify that David was a type of king. He wasn't just any other ordinary king. He was a type of king. God has historically promised his people that he would send someone who would deliver them for all time, who would rule and reign over them to bring about peace, to bring about prosperity, to bring about comfort. This king would not just restore things uh, physically, but spiritually. This king would not just restore things relationally with the people, but relationally with God. And so David is acting as this foreshadow of a king to come. So when we read in verse 4 that Joseph is of the family line of David, if you're a Jew at the time and you're reading this, you're immediately being transported back to that covenantal promise that God has made. And you're thinking, wait, he's got a kid and we're mentioning David. I wonder if this is the promised descendant. I wonder if this is the king to come. Verse 10 also tells us that this child is no ordinary child. This child is the saviour, the Christ. This king is a saviour. This king couldn't just have a finite reign. Couldn't be on the throne for 60 to 70 years and, and, was, and was dead. They couldn't just offer some momentary relief for the people and the land. His rule couldn't be compromised by old age or sickness or danger or pain. It needed to be eternal. It needed to be once and for all. And this is the heart of the Christmas story. There is a saviour. But if you don't know what you need saving from, you don't know why there is a saviour in the first place. Let's not assume these things. God's made it abundantly clear throughout history, throughout this book, through prophets, through signs and wonders, and even through the ordinary things that are around us that are visible to see, we are broken people living in a broken world. You don't have to look far to know that. Pick up a tabloid, turn on the telly, scroll through your phones, even in our lives, even in our neighborhoods, at work and at home. We feel this. We carry it. We see it all around us. It's not as it's meant to be. Even with our best attempts to fix ourselves and the world, and though honourable they are, and we should definitely look to do good to people and the world and, and ourselves, we're still faced with the writings on the wall. The world has fallen, and so have we. Humpty Dumpty can't put himself back together again. See, that's why we long for comfort and pleasure, because it's so fleeting in this world. It's, I've used this analogy before. It's like candy floss. As soon as you've tasted it, it's gone. 
We all know this. Why is it that good things don't last forever? We have that burden on our heart. We go from chasing one thing to the next, and we're left wondering why it would never last. Um, to paraphrase the English writer C.S. Lewis, if we find ourselves longing for something that the world hasn't offered us, it's probably because we're made for another world. This is the truth. God wants us to have comfort and pleasure, but he doesn't mean for it to be momentary. God wants us to have comfort and pleasure, but he doesn't mean for it to be momentary. Uh, John Bloom, he's a theologian, writer, he's still alive, this guy. Um, He says, God blatantly entices us to seek happiness, joy and pleasure, whatever you call it. In him, with verses like this, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're supposed to want pleasure. Why does God want us to want pleasure? Because it's a crucial indicator. Pleasure is the meter in your heart that measures how valuable, how precious someone or something is to you. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. The good news that we see in this story is in verse 14. The good news that brings us great joy, that brings us eternal comfort and pleasure. Verse 14 summarized. Peace with God, and God's pleased with you. Peace with God, and God's pleased with you. What has caused our world to be broken? Is it a questionable good God who is blind to our sufferings and indifferent to our pain? I mean, look at Mary and Joseph. They didn't exactly have a comfortable time themselves. Is it that we're part of some cruel variation of squid game? where God just loves to stamp out every good thing in our life. No, (laughs) it's not that. The problem is called sin. Ooh, the ugly words. (laughs) It's an attitude, it's an action, a decision to divert away from the comfort and pleasure that God has offered us. That's sin. It's saying, do you know what, God? Everything good you've got, no, I don't want it. That's sin. It's turning away. It's missing the mark. It's being blind to comfort and pleasure. See, there's a reason why, the, why Eden was a garden and not a factory. God has said it really clearly. I'm the one who brings about peace in this world. I'm the one who brings about harmony and unity and diversity and fullness of life. I've built a world to be fruitful and abundant in joy. But... I'm at the heart of it. I'm your comfort and joy. It doesn't exist without me. And you can't exist in his presence if you're tainted by the poisonous sin. You just can't be in his presence if you're covered in sin. Why? Because sin is the antagonist of everything that is good and honorable and true. It ruins everything. It's the opposite of life. It brings death. The Bible says sin brings death. Physically and spiritually. So, sin needs to be removed. This is what's cool about the Christmas story. It's actually about Easter. (laughs) It's actually about Easter. Mary indeed had a little lamb, but the lamb would be led to slaughter. Jesus faces the greatest discomfort and pain. 
imaginable. He dies on a cross. Even before that, his, his, his skin is torn off. It's lacerated by whips made out of leather and teeth and glass attached to it. He carries the burden and repercussions of sin for all people, all time. He offers himself as the payment for it. He quenches what sin is doing. He, as the Bible tells us, he became sin. Everything was laid on him. And God would not only just pardon us for those who put their faith in him, but this is the incredible statement of the gospel. God would be pleased with us. This is mad. God finds pleasure in you. Because of what Jesus did. He finds pleasure in you. That's, that's incredible. The God of the universe doesn't really need us. He decides, oh, I find pleasure in you. It's capped off, as we've been singing this morning, by the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. You see, the greatest threat to our comfort and pleasure in life is not the annoying relative. It's not the nagging boss. It's not that you can't pay your rent. It's not that you don't get that gift. The greatest threat to our comfort and pleasure in life is sin leading to death. Death is the thing that takes away our comfort and pleasure. But Jesus rises from the dead and he triumphantly stands and says, Do you know what? Sin and death, they're under me. They're in the grave. It's done, it's finished. I remember seeing a clip this week of uh, Chelsea striker Romelu Lukaku. He's doing a training session with uh, Carragher. It's like old school Liverpool player. Um, Carragher's obviously much older than him at this point. <laughs> and they're doing a training session and he's showing him how he wins the ball. And within a few seconds, Lukaku's got his armor against him and he's like, it's finished. And he goes on. There's no contest there. It's finished. And that's what Jesus is saying. Death... No contest. It's done. So, why would God do this? Why would God go to such extreme lengths to restore our comfort and pleasure? Anyone ever heard this phrase? You've probably seen it on a sticker or on a t-shirt. It's very cliche, I know. Jesus loves you. <laughs> We've all seen it, right? Do you know there's something wrong with that message? Uh-oh. <laughs> and he's lost it. It's incomplete. That statement is incomplete, especially in the time that we live in when we're talking and communicating to the people around us. Don't get me wrong. The statement's true. Jesus does love you. But it's short-changed. This is why. When you hear that statement for the first time, if you did hear it for the first time and you haven't been raised in a Christian family and just kind of adopted it, your first thought probably is, that's a bit weird. That's a bit weird. Some guy just randomly loves me. You might also think, oh, that's cute. You cute Christians. Oh, you're so nice, little hippies. Or it might just mean nothing to you. Like, I don't really care, to be honest. I've got to go to a meeting now. 
I think for most of us, we're quite content with the love that we already have in our lives. We've got our parents, we've got our friends, we've got ourselves. Those things aren't really threatened when you tell someone that Jesus loves them. Even if those relationships were maybe absent in your life, you're probably still a bit skeptical or untrustworthy of a stranger telling you that they love you. I mean, if someone random walked up to me in the street and told me that they loved me, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. But if you were to add a single word to the end of that statement, it would completely change the notion. Jesus loves you more. Now we're talking. Now you've got people's attention. Here is someone who is saying that they love you more than your mum, your boyfriend, your partner, your best friend, your child. Here's also someone who's saying they will satisfy you more than anything you love. Those late nine gaming sessions, those hikes across the Lake District, those new Yeezys that dropped, the dream car, the 1.8 kids and the four-bedroom house, the amazing night of sex, the winning lottery ticket, the last TV show you binged. Jesus is saying, I love you more than that. Remember at the start of the talk, I asked you to think and name one thing that you're looking forward to most this Christmas. Keep that in your head now. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. The Bible says every good gift comes down from the Father. We should praise God for those things. But guess what? Jesus says, I'm better than it. I'll give you more. Don't just settle for the gifts this Christmas. Don't settle for the dinners. Don't settle for times with friends and family or the sausage rolls. Those are good things. But Jesus is better. Thank you. Can I pray to close? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and for the comfort and pleasure he gives to us, regardless of whether we're in high-top moments or valley lows. Thank you you understand where we're at, whether we feel like we're on the top of the world or in the gutter. Lord, you've experienced both. You know what it is. But more than that, you give us what we desperately desire and need, comfort and pleasure in you, the ultimate source of peace, the ultimate source of prosperity, the ultimate source of happiness and love. Lord, we find that in you. And I pray, Jesus, that for all of us, Christians and non, that this Christmas would be a time where we are thankful, we are grateful, we we delight ourselves in the many gifts that you've given us. But, oh, Lord, let us remember the giver, the giver of life, the giver of family, the giver of wonderful privileges. And even where we may be lacking this Christmas, Lord, we know we find our, our complete contentment in you. Lord, I pray for us as a church, if we know people this Christmas who are having a tough time, let us reach out, Lord. Let us not be selfish. Let us not be closed off. If Jesus, if you treated us like that, boy, oh boy, we need to be on the front foot for those who are having a tough time, to, to extend the love of God to them, to show them, do you know what? Jesus is real. He's changed my life. He's going to change yours. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.